It's great to see you guys again. My fourth time in a row uh, here hanging out with you. That's a personal record for me, so I celebrate that. Um, this is actually the last Sunday uh, for that we have planned anyway that I'll uh, be um, teaching up front, so excited to, to spend this morning with you guys. Um, a quick little plug, and I really hate to do this, but um, this is something that I brought um, it's a book that I wrote. It's called The Stories That We Live. Um, so if over the last couple weeks, some of the themes that we've been talking about up here have been intriguing to you, um, if I've said anything that you're like, oh, I like that, that's good. Maybe there's more in the book, I don't know. Um, so they're back at the book. It's next to a sign that says, um, help yourself. And you can help yourself if you wanna throw a couple bones in the, in the cardboard box there at the bottom too to kind of help cover the cost of printing it, um, that'd be fine too. So anyway, commercial over. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so I'm gonna ask you guys a fun question here. I'm giving you a very powerful remote control. Um, and imagine that I give you this remote control and you can immediately freeze reality. Um, I think there's actually an Adam Sandler movie like this, but don't think about that. We're just making the scenario up. So uh, you get to freeze reality for an unlimited amount of time and then go around while everybody's frozen and fix everything. Rearrange what needs to be arranged. Uh, totally heal the world, the universe. Um, so, so think about that, that freeze button. What would you do? Now, scary scenario, let's ask... 16-year-old you, that same question. We'll give you, uh, younger you, that same power to freeze and stop time. What would you have done then? What would you have? And now the scariest scenario of all, let's invite some of the kids from the kids area, maybe some four-year-olds. We'll let them freeze reality and decide what should be. We would all have blobs for faces and eat crayons for breakfast. And I don't know, it would, it would be dangerous, scary stuff. Um, this question is uh, pretty intriguing to me. In fact, I was talking with my Panera cashier about it this morning. Um, she was like, well, what are you? I said, I was doing a, th she said, what are you doing today? I said, I'm teaching. Uh, I said, uh, she said, what are you teaching on? And I said, well, total flourishing. Because everybody has an idea about what's wrong with the world. Everybody has an idea about, man, if everything was as it should be, this is the way it should be, right? Um, and if we started walking around the neighborhood or, I don't know, went to a busy corner in Renton or Seattle or something and just randomly took polls of people and we said, what, when everything is as it should be in the world, how does that reality look? Everyone would have some kind of an opinion, right? Um, and so today, we're going to dissect some of the most popular narratives that our culture has for flourishing, human flourishing, what that looks like. Uh, more importantly, we're going to see what God's Word has to say about that and what God's vision is uh, for human flourishing and for the flourishing of the world. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed today. We're going to be starting out in Jeremiah chapter 17 which if I were ever forced to pick like a life verse, um, I want my life verse to be like the whole Bible, but I know some people are like, do you have a life verse? What's your life verse? If I had to pick one, 
Jeremiah 17. Um, so now you guys are uh, getting in on that scoop. So that's where we're going to head here. Um, going to start in verse 5 of Jeremiah 17. If uh, it's been a while since you flipped to Jeremiah, it's kind of just in the middle of your Bible there. It's one of the major, major prophets. So uh, Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it does, uh, is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So we find here this be- beautiful poetic imagery of two very disparate um, kinds of vegetation, right? We've got a shrub in a parched place. I'm pretty sure there's a song about that too, like, I don't want no shrubs, right? Is that how it goes? Maybe? It's been a while. Some of you guys got it. Um, so we see, we see that in stark contrast with a stream flowing and a tree that's planted right next to the stream that its roots can um, branch out, receive life from the stream, and it's just green all the time. So we'll kind of explore that imagery a bit, but I want to camp to start with on verses 5 and 6, where what we see really is an alternative vision of flourishing. So this shrub, if we were to speak of it in anthropomorphic terms, meaning the shrub had a personality and the ability to communicate and speak, this shrub uh, is thinking to itself, uh, well, I don't really need the Lord. I'm going to plant myself here uh, in these parched places of the wilderness, and this will probably turn out good for me, right? If the shrub had thoughts, uh, the shrub isn't trying to self-sabotage. It's trying to survive and make its way. Unfortunately, it has a very bad strategy for flourishing. Um, when you think about, so in, in this morning, I want us not just to hear God's story for what health and vitality and flourishing looks like, but I want us to try to think really deeply and critically about what are our friends who are outside of the faith, what story do they believe about flourishing, right? Because if you ask them, they wouldn't say like, oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like they're living by some other sort of narrative. Um, and there's some popular ones in our, our world today, specifically here in our culture. So materialism, right? The idea that as I accumulate more and more wealth or material goods, that that will make me satisfied, that will make me whole, that will give me greater capacity to enjoy my life, that will give me uh, greater status um, in my social circles all of these things. So materialism, there's people who live by a code, live by a narrative of nationalism, um, whether that's partisan politics or um, I love Jesus and I love my guns equally or whatever, 
whatever it might be. Um, there's all kinds of isms, right? I want to take a look at a couple isms here that maybe some of your friends outside the faith are, are living by right now. I actually just read a book. Um, I heard it was Bill Gates' favorite book called Enlightenment Now. It's, it, the subtitle is like The Case for uh, Progress, Reason, and Humanism or something like that. So I was like, oh, wow, you know, Bill Gates, he's pretty big time. Like, I wonder what this book is. And so I, I read it and I wanted to share this quote um, with you from it. We're going to take a look at, yeah, I know that's a lot of text there, but um, so think about somebody who's living by this humanistic uh, code or this, uh, there's a lot of overlap with, even between humanism and atheism. Basically, the narrative of humanism says that uh, reason is king. Reason is like a, maybe the core value. And then with our reason, we have an ability to make the world better ourselves, to make progress, right? Um, so Steven Pinker, the author, um, tells the story of he was in some Q&A session at a college and, and a kid stands up and says, well, why should I live? What is my reason for living? And this was his summary of his answer that he gave. In the very act of asking that question, you are seeking reasons for your convictions, and you are so committed to reason as the means to discover and justify what's important to you. And there are so many reasons to live. As a sentient being, you have the potential to flourish. That's interesting. That's what we're talking about. Uh, You can refine your faculty of reason by learning and debating. You can seek explanations of the natural world through science and insight into the human condition through the arts and humanities. You can make the most of your capacity for pleasure and satisfaction, which allowed your ancestors to thrive and allowed you to exist. You can appreciate the beauty and richness of the natural and cultural world. And as the heir to billions of years of life perpetuating itself, you can perpetuate life in turn. You've been endowed with a sense of sympathy, the ability to like, love, respect, help, and show kindness. And you can enjoy the gift of mutual benevolence with friends, family, and colleagues. And because reason tells you that none of this is particular to you, you have the responsibility to provide others what you expect for yourself. This is really important here. You can foster the welfare of other sentient beings by enhancing life, health, knowledge, freedom, abundance, safety, beauty, and peace. History shows that when we sympathize with others and apply our ingenuity to improving the human condition, we can make progress in doing so, and you can help to continue that progress. So that is a very articulate, um, very compelling, in some ways, presentation of the idea of humanism, right? That we... We don't really need God. I mean, he's invisible, so, you know, you can't really make a good case for him. What we have is we have our reason, and what we have is humanity, and we need to make humanity better through the way that we live, and then he's talking about all these values here, life, health, knowledge, freedom, abundance, safety, beauty, and peace. That's pretty compelling stuff. So if you were talking with Steven Pinker or uh, a friend who maybe had read this book or kind of was living, living outside of the faith and underneath this ism, what would a conversation look like with them about flourishing? Well, I think uh, when we look at any narrative that is outside of God's word, that's outside of the gospel, it's really helpful to understand it, um, that it's 
never all a lie, right? It's never all bad. And so if you look at this Pinker quote here, there's some truth that is to be appreciated. Um, And frequently when I'm having conversations with people outside the faith like this, I, I love to, first thing after they say something, to be like, well, I agree with this, this, and this. And like with Pinker, uh, some of the stuff I underline here, like, yeah, life, health, knowledge, freedom, abundance, safety, beauty, and peace, that's great. I would, I would agree with that. I, you, you and I would probably also agree with the fact that we have a responsibility to, um, you know, our Bible has a golden rule in it, right? But he says you have a responsibility to live this way with other people. So there's some truth in there that's to be appreciated. There's always truth in these narratives even if they're outside of the faith but there's also they're also part myth they're also part lie they also have problems and sometimes contradictions that are built within them that we need to be able to dissect and think about and we wouldn't be very good friends to our people outside the faith we wouldn't be authentic if we didn't talk about those as well right so like take this for example, he says, um, we, we have to make the most of our capacity for pleasure and satisfaction. Okay, so that's a very, that's a very me-focused um, thing, maximizing, optimizing my capacity to enjoy life. But then down below that, he says, I have the obligation, I have the responsibility to provide for others what I expect for myself. So what happens when my capacity for pleasure and my desire for pleasure comes in conflict with these other values that he's talking about? There's a little bit of a problem there. What, which is gonna give in that situation? Does that make sense? Furthermore, these values uh, that he's describing here, man, where do we get a definition for those? Like they sound really good when we give them in a list. Um, And there are lists like this in scripture, right? Like the fruit of the spirit. Lots Lots of lists of values, but we have this that's breathed by God's spirit. We have a God who then has implanted his spirit in us to form us in these values, to show us when we're out of alignment with them. But if I'm going to live according to a code of atheistic humanism how can I be shaped and formed in these values by an authoritative reliable source how can I become more peaceable how can I become more kind how can I propagate peace some of these things as we start to dissect it make for really interesting conversations with people um, outside the faith uh there's a book I love by a guy named Francis Buford. The book is Unapologetic, uh, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Still Makes Surprising Emotional Sense. And he talks about, he's uh, from England. And in England, he saw a bus driving by with an ad, a billboard ad on the bus from like the Atheist Club. I don't know what they're called, but it was atheists that had uh, taken out this ad. And it said, the ad text was, there probably is no God, so just relax and enjoy life. And you think about some of the presuppositions of that. It says, well, there probably is no God. Relax, enjoy your life. 
built in within that statement is the idea that God or religion is antithetical to my enjoyment of life, which I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily true. The Bible I read says that God is, Psalm 16, 11, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's the God of joy. He's the source of enjoyment for life. Um, so I hope if nothing else, maybe the Spirit can kind of start to light a little spark in you, give you some kind of analytical mind for, like, what are the stories that my family, that my friends who are outside the faith, like, what is their hope in? What is their vision of flourishing? And how can I have a conversation with them about that in a way that both acknowledges some of the truth that's built into that narrative, but also points out how it falls short, how it's not, it's not entirely true. It's not um, the best narrative to live by. So uh, now that we've kind of looked at some of the bad stuff, right? Um, let's take a peek at what God says here um, about true flourishing. In, so we're in 17 and we'll drop down to 7 and 8. So the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, he's that tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and doesn't fear when heat comes. The leaves remain green. It isn't anxious in the year of drought for it doesn't to bear fruit. And the picture that we have here is, um, when I imagine it, it's a palm tree because I like those palm trees. What's the first thing you do if you're like taking a trip down to LA and, uh, well, the first thing you do is probably go to In-N-Out, right? But after that, you you probably take a selfie with a palm tree or make sure you get some of those in in that picture. Um, So as I imagine it, it's that palm tree. And totally different than the shrub in the desert, it is planted by a stream. Well, how does that, how does that help it? Well, the tree needs water to live. So it's right by the source. And trees have this subterranean strategy for obtaining nourishment, right? It's their root system. So its, its roots, unlike the shrub, its roots are deep. Um, and I love this picture too because Paul mentions it in Colossians 2. He says, let the roots of your faith go down deep just as you first trusted in Christ, now so walk in him. This idea of like trees, trees as life, trees as you and me is kind of all throughout scripture. It's pretty crazy if you start to think about it. It's also in Psalm 92. Uh, we're gonna take a peek at uh, Matthew 13 later uh, as well. So it, it's all throughout um, this tree planted by the stream. And then look at the environmental hazards and environmental conditions that are coming against this tree, right? So it says there are times of, of drought. There's times when it's not raining. It is not fortuitous conditions for the tree. Well, how does the tree survive? Well, it's, it's planted by the stream. And so th- there's times too where the heat is just beating down and the tree would die. It would wither, but it's planted by the stream and the roots are able to draw some of that moisture and that that nourishment again. 
And so regardless of all these environmental conditions and dangers and hazards that would kill the tree, the tree stays alive. But more than that, the tree is ever green. It never ceases to bear fruit. And the reason I love this poetic image is because uh, it ultimately is what I want my life to be. And I think it's a pretty good picture for all of us as we look at our faith uh, and not just where your relationship with Jesus is today as you sit here, but 10 years from now, will you still be green? 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if you project out the trajectory of your faith, will you still be vibrantly connected to God, receiving life from him, able to bear fruit in any season? That's what I want for myself so desperately. And that's what God wants for you. That vision of flourishing, that's what he has. Now, to to dig a little deeper with it, um, there's one specific word that is, or and variations of it are mentioned over a thousand times in the Old Testament that is deeply connected to God's agenda, his vision for the flourishing of the world. And that word is shalom. Um, Other words that are connected to that are, are justice and righteousness in the Old Testament, which those Hebrew words are like sadakah and mishpat. So when I say it's mentioned over a thousand times, it's the, those words because they're connected to, to shalom. So what is shalom? What is God's vision for the flourishing of the world and for humanity? It is simply this. Right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with self and right relationship with creation. So all of those relationships, well-ordered, all of those relationships thriving and in good health, in good standing, that is God's desire for us individually, but also universally. That's what God wants for the world. And in the Old Testament, when God talks about justice and righteousness, um, God defines the righteous person as someone who contributes to shalom in the world. So the righteous person, God's definition in the Old Testament is one who disadvantages himself or herself for the sake of community shalom. And if you think about what Jesus did on the cross, and how Paul describes it in Philippians 2, though he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant so that he, so that he could make us right with God, so that he could bring about the possibility of flourishing and get us in on that. So that's why Jesus truly is the righteous one. He makes the potential for a little bit of flourishing in our life right now possible. But then, I know you guys finished up a series about a month ago with Zach on heaven and hell, and like, heaven, that's kind of where the deal is sealed, right? Like, back face to face with God, experiencing total comprehensive flourishing. Um, Jesus opens the door for all of that. I've got, uh, I'm not gonna lie, 
been watching a lot of NBA playoffs lately. Is there any other NBA fans? Because I'm about to talk about the NBA for a minute. Anybody? Okay, like a few NBA fans. All right. Um, even if you want, don't watch the NBA, you like know LeBron James, right? Okay. So I got a picture for you here. This is actually from like the old days when he was with the Heat, but I just wanted to show an NBA picture. And man, this is sick. So we got Dwayne Wade in the front here. He's, look, he, he knows what's about to happen. He knows LeBron is about to throw down behind him here. Um, so he's just, he's the hype man right there. That's such a cool picture. I heard he actually, uh, at the end of his career, he wants LeBron to sign that picture for him so he can put it in his house. I thought that was pretty fun. So as I'm watching the NBA here, you're seeing people operate um, at the highest level of skill, right? And it is fun to watch. So um, Chris Paul on the Houston Rockets, their point guard, he, he was hurt in the last game, but you know he's the guy who's bringing the ball down the, the court and kind of facilitating, look, having some vision to pass to his teammates, help them get open shots and, and being creative. Um, you know, you watch a guy like uh, Kevin Durant or LeBron James and your jaw is just on the floor. But what you never see if you watch one of the Game 7s that's, you know, coming on, you're, you're not going to see any of these guys bringing the ball down the court and then stop for a second and look at the ref and be like, how many times am I allowed to dribble here? Um, am I allowed to shoot here or pass? I'm a little bit confused. None of these guys have problems with the rules. It is already like so, such a part of their DNA, they don't even have to think about it. So what they get to do out there is just have fun and be creative. And of course, the goal of basketball, even if you, you know next to nothing about it, you know that like you're trying to score points, right? You're trying to get the ball in the hoop. But it's not dictated in the rules how you accomplish that. That is left up to the creativity of the players. And I think in a, in a very similar way, um, living out the reality of the flourishing that God's made possible through Jesus, walking in obedience to Jesus, we find ourselves in a really similar situation. Because I don't want to be uh, flippant or anything as I say this, but guys, Christianity is actually fairly simple. So we, with childlike faith, we are brought in to God's family. We are united with Christ. And Jesus just says, um, okay, so here's your job now. I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me and I in you. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. So he's just saying, stay connected to me. And we'll go from there. So stay connected to Jesus. That's the rules of the game. Pay attention to Jesus' teaching. And then from there, we are given a vast amount of creative freedom about how to obey Jesus. About how to let the reality of who God is bleed into the lives of those around us. You know, the, the kingdom of God the message that Jesus came preaching is just the idea that we comprehensively reorient every area of our life under his leadership. So every area of life comes in to surrender to Jesus. 
And so if we're living from that place, to kind of mix my analogies here and jump back to basketball, if you're living from that place, you can shoot a three-pointer. You can pass it to a teammate who's going in for a layup. Heck, you can even shoot the ball from half court. There's some freedom. And that's why, uh, that's why Martin Luther, the reformer, was so audacious so as to say, love God and do as you please. Which is kind of crazy, right? But if, if we are loving God supremely, if we are abiding in Christ, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, if you abide in Christ, you will not sin. Now you're going to sin again because you and I all step out of faith in the gospel and place trust in those false narratives that we've been talking about. But that to say, experience the fun and the creative freedom of imagining how to live out the kingdom of God and how to live out this truth of flourishing in your context. And the good news is, God is actually the most creative being in the universe, and he has placed his spirit within you to provide you with imagination for what it looks like to love him, love others, and provide a window into the kingdom for them in your daily life. He wants to give you the the creativity and the imagination for that. I want to show uh, one more picture uh, here. This is from a trip I took a few years ago in Ireland, and um, I was right on the Irish Sea. Like a few, the Irish Sea is a couple hundred yards away from where this picture was, and uh, I just walked out of the the house that I was staying in. Um, this was early in the morning, and the grass was wet with dew, and there was this grove of trees right there, and. Um, as I stepped outside, I guess I was too loud because all these birds went flying. They had been in the trees. And, um, and then I snapped a shot. I thought it was a cool photo. Obviously, I destroyed it with filters and layers and things like that. But um, it reminded me of one more tree passage that I kind of want to start to land the plane with here and, and uh, close with. But it's in Matthew 13, 31. Matthew 13, 31. And Jesus, uh, is, this is a parable here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So this idea of a very, like, I don't know anything hardly about seeds, but mustard seeds are maybe one of the most tiny seeds. Like very, there would be people who are outside the faith who hear all our teaching today about um, flourishing and the gospel and these things, and they think, oh, wow, that is very that's very unimpressive. Like, how could that become anything? Like, what we need to trust is reason, or what we need to trust is um, economic policies, or what we need to trust is environmentalism, or whatever the ism is. But what Jesus says is when this seed of the kingdom is embedded within our hearts, within the heart 
of a community of believers like the mission. And when we actually start to feed that seed and it starts to sprout and grow, it becomes something that people can't help but notice. It says the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Just like I got to see with that grove there in Ireland. If we imagine all of the problems that are wrong with the world today, uh, I wish I had this as a visual for you, but imagine like a bunch of fishing string tied up with a bunch of uh, rope knotted up with a bunch of chain and also uh, let's throw a few slugs in there too. So it's just sort of this ball of nasty, right? And everybody who is living by a narrative outside of the gospel of Jesus by some kind of ism, everybody's got an idea about how the world can be made right, right? So so whether that's, uh, you know, the political party or uh, they might say, well, we got to, this is, this is wrong in our political system, so let's pull out this fishing line. Well, that's great news. You're trying to fix that, but guess what? We still got the slugs crawling around with the chain, crawling around with the thread. It's still a mess. Or people who are looking at, uh, purely at a social justice issue but not trying to address that from the lens of the gospel. They might say, well, you know, people are, are living in poverty here and we've got we've to fix that and so let's pull the chain out of the knot here. But guess what? That's only one facet of the problem. The good news with the message that Jesus teaches when, we, when he talks about kingdom, when he talks about flourishing, is that it addresses the entire knot. It comprehensively addresses every individual evil in this world, every systemic evil as well. So the message of Jesus and his kingdom, it is good news for the little girl who gets hurt by her dad. It is good news for victims of human trafficking. It is good news for white middle class uh, sinners like me. It is good news for people who are under oppressive regimes, dictatorial governments. It's good news for victims of abuse. It's even good news for abusers if they themselves trust in the message. So can you see how this story of flourishing is so much more comprehensive than the narrowness of these other isms? We have a better story to tell. We have a better hope to offer the world than these narrow narratives. Just a in closing here, maybe a a potential activity for you this week. As I was meditating on uh, Jeremiah 17, I did something that is so deeply fearsome to my heart, and I decided maybe I'll do a little sketch of this in my journal. It was dangerous. Um, I think I told you a couple weeks ago, like, I am not good at the art stuff, people. Um, I am often frustrated by my attempts. So what I did is I... 
I drew the little stream with a bunch of blue triangles that were connected. And then my palm tree was a bunch of like brown squares that are uh, connected. And so I said, hey, this is impressionism or something like that versus a more accurate sketch. You know, this week, could you do something with this poetic image of a tree? Could you take a little time to find an image on Google of the type of tree that pictures what you want your life to be, what you want the life of your family to be? Could you buy a piece of art? Could you make a sketch in your journal? Could you, uh, in your car on the way home, share a piece of this with your kids and say, well, what kind of tree do you want to be? You know, if you were a tree, what would be the best kind? Could you take your family or loved ones to to the forest or out to a prominent tree in the yard or in the neighborhood and have a conversation there about the symbolism of that and how it connects with a life that is rooted in Jesus and the flourishing that he offers? Um, Be creative with it and find a way to let this truth take root uh, in you and in your heart to, to help you remember to live it out. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to respond to God right now through some communion and through worship. As you uh, get ready to take the cup and take the bread in a minute, remember that those pictured Jesus' uh, body and blood, which were broken for us, broken so that we could become made right with God, be brought into his family, and have a faith that is rooted in him. And then we'll sing these songs here. Uh, Just turn them into a thank you note to God for all that he's done. So Father, uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the possibility of real vitality, real life, real flourishing that you bring about. And we know that it can only come through you. It can't come through any other um, agenda or any narrative that trusts man but not you. Father, embolden us to share this good news with those who are outside the faith. But God, help us also to be good listeners. Help us to be filled with the wisdom of your spirit so that we can see the story that they're trusting in and have a conversation around that and listen well and then share from that place of understanding. for the opportunity to gather this morning to experience your presence and we now sing these songs to you because they're true and we're grateful.